interesting thing, Nancy, is that before COVID, I think we had to be all things to all people, right? Uh, I have to be, oh, I have people that want to work remote. I got to make that work. I have people that want this. I got to make that work. I have all these different factions inside of an organization trying to do things. And, you know, I can't get rid of Fred, even though Fred wants to work remote because I need to make it work, etc. Now I have this opportunity to say, what sort of company do I want to be? Today, I had a chance to catch up with Evan Sohn, CEO of Recruiter.com. In a few moments, I hope you'll join me in a high-energy conversation with Evan as we talk about what he predicts will be a shift from the employee-led job market of the pandemic to more of an employer-centric market as part of what's normal next. The headline is that Evan says we'll be shifting from stockpiling hand sanitizer and toilet paper to an age when employers will start actually stockpiling people. What that means is that talent acquisition, onboarding, knowledge management, and retention will all be under new strain as organizations jockey for position with talent acquisition. And that's regardless of whether they style themselves as purely remote, fully-fledged hybrid, or even those driving a full-on return to the office. For the digital workplace professional, that means that you could be doubly challenged with staffing up your teams with capable people at the same time as supporting your stakeholders with bringing in new talent and helping them get online be productive and connected at faster intervals than ever. Evan shares a few words of advice for both sets of needs. And I'd also suggest that while you're taking Evan's advice on board, that you have a copy of DWG's research entitled Organizational Readiness, What Digital Workplace Teams Need to Know on Hand as well. Check the show notes for a link to the download to this insightful piece of research from DWG's own Director of Knowledge, Shamri Jaynes. Join me now in the studio. Happy listening. So, Evan, it's so great to have you in the Digital Workplace Impact Studio for a chat today. Thanks so much for making the time and welcome. Uh, thank you so much, Nancy, for having me. And with your yeah, your history of, of podcast, I, I think... We're we're certainly over a hundred, uh, so it's good to be in your second your second batch of hundred podcasts. So very excited to be part of it. And of course, I have to name check Amy Yin and the team at Office Together for connecting us in the first. You've got quite a fascinating background, and and I'm so happy to have a chance to get to know you as part of this conversation, as well as to share some of your insights with our listening base. Uh, thank you very much, Nancy. And for your listeners, uh, do yourselves a favor and go on uh, the their website, the Digital uh, Workplace Group website. You see a great timeline of their history, and it really mirrors along the digital workforce history. So it's very interesting. Uh, so really fascinating as part of the as part of the experience. Well, thanks. That's such a nice way to start things off. And of course, you've had a twenty five plus year career that has uh, spanned e-commerce at Fortune 500 and startup environments. And I have to ask, just to kick things off, what put you on a path to leading one of the world's largest hiring networks, which of course is Recruiter.com? Thanks so much. Um, uh, that, By the way, for your audience, that was a euphemism for saying I'm old. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, I started my uh, career in 1989. I was 21 years old, so you could figure out the math. Um, in uh, And I started a company right out of school in mobile computing. So think of what the 90s looked like in mobile, very, very different than uh, what we see today. And we grew that company over a decade, uh, worked with some incredible companies, uh, incredible clients, uh, a lot of pharmaceuticals and wireless and all these other things got acquired by Dun & Bradstreet in 1998, and then went on. I was pulled out of that company by a venture capital company into the security space, spent a bunch of years in the security space, did a few uh, transactions there in terms of being acquired, Uh, then went back into mobile, uh, into payments, mobile payments, got acquired. Um, So did that for a little while, Uh, and then um, was really thinking about how to uh, do this on the operational side for a small company. Uh, And ironically, Recruiter.com really uh, is a small company. We're a startup uh, on NASDAQ. 
And I got introduced by one of the investors about a little over three years ago. And I love expert networks. Uh, I love that whole notion of tying people together and leveraging the audience, uh, your community, uh, to serve an industry, a common industry in a bigger, better, faster way. Um, And uh, when I got to Recruiter.com, Recruiter.com really was an online media company. So think of your destination site for all things recruiting, three articles a day, a a monthly magazine, uh, three and a half million social media touch points, 48,000 Twitter followers, lots and lots and lots of organic traffic, a lot of great SEO. And uh, my thesis was, hey, look, how do we use all these recruiters to really do what they do best, which is help find talent? And instead of the recruiter being the customer, let's make the recruiter the product, if you will, if you will sort of monetize the overall network itself. And we started really on a path of on-demand recruiting, using these recruiters as on-demand recruiters. Again, the notion is, hey, uh, you have this great skill set in finding talent. There are companies that want to have access to this. They don't want to do it on their own, uh, and they don't want to pay a headhunter fee. So how do we use this in a like Uber manner, an Uber for talent acquisition? So we started that really at the end of 2020 into 21. COVID hits, uh, I decide to be CEO, we could talk about it a little bit later, in June of 21. I mean, I, I basically told the board, hey, when this COVID thing is over, the the job economy is going to be an absolute disarray, and we're going to be there to help uh, put things back together again. And recognize that, gee, if we're going to deploy recruiters on demand, let's give them the, the equivalent of a, a GPS for an Uber driver. So the, the equivalent of a GPS for a recruiter is really software. So we went out and invested millions of dollars into uh, fantastic artificial intelligence software uh, that helps us uh, source and engage candidates. We have 170 million profiles in the U.S. alone in our database, growing and refreshing it on a regular basis. We have career communities, everything that's necessary to help find talent faster. Our clients range from you know Fortune 100 companies to startups and law firms and uh, old, old school companies uh, really across the board. Uh, and we help these companies uh, with their most precious asset, which is the people inside their company. That was a very long-winded answer to a very simple question. So sorry, Nancy. Sorry about that. No, no apology needed. I have to say I've discovered in a matter of minutes that we are birds of a feather and of the same vintage. So we've uh, ticked a couple <laughs> of boxes in common right off the bat. And uh, what you also won't know yet is that my roots are from the HR space. So just as you were talking, I was feeling uh, just such a connection on that level, too. So I'm someone who started as an HR professional once upon a time at J.P. Morgan Chase back in the old J.P. Morgan days when it was a much smaller company and had a real affinity for technology and ended up standing up our first EHR strategy, as it was termed back then, and then moved into IT in order to help transform a lot of the corporate services into digital services. And so I'm just feeling a real kinship here in terms of uh, the journeys that we've undertaken and uh, even the entrepreneurial spirit that uh, we both share. So I'm really curious to learn more about some of your top motivators and what gets you excited about each new day at recruiter.com? So uh, it's a a great question. Uh, We're having a ton of fun. The impact that we're making, not just to ourselves, uh, but to the companies that we work with is just tremendous. And our overall network, our our recruiter network is now over 40,000 recruiters on our platform now. Not all of them are out on assignment. We have a couple hundred out on assignment on a regular basis. And we have customers now subscribing to our software. We have career communities in uh, media. We, we uh, have Media Bistro, which is an award-winning career community for the uh, advertising and ad tech space. We launched a career community just for recruiters uh, called jobs.recruiter.com. We launched one just focused on crypto. So crypto.recruiter.com are going to be doing a bunch of others also. The other thing that we're finding is, you know, to me, I love being a customer's first phone call. I ask it all the time. Uh, I want, that's our goal. We want to be a customer's first phone call. You know, we did not invent talent acquisition. So 
I don't want to say it's a commodity, but there are lots of people in the talent acquisition space. It's a huge, giant industry. So if you can actually be a customer's first phone call, if you're their advisor, if you're there to help them solve their problems, that's a phenomenal position to be in. And we're seeing that every day. We're seeing clients of ours, uh, global heads of talent or heads of talent at companies leave, go to another company and bring us in. Um, but we're also seeing our on-demand recruiters being offered full-time positions at their clients. And that's amazing. Uh, someone say, oh, that's disintermediating. I'm like, just the opposite. It means that the quality that we're delivering to our clients is so much, uh, such a high regard for the recruiters that they offer them full-time jobs. And uh, we, we welcome that. So it's uh, it's a very exciting to be able to really have this impact uh, and really be at the epicenter of the job market itself. Well, I have to say that's such a, a mark of credibility when your own team members, uh, your own network is being integrated into uh, client uh, capabilities because just thinking about my own experience and the strength of the J.P. Morgan Chase alumni network, you've now got an alumni network for Recruiter.com that is now creating a groundswell effect um, as uh, that base continues to grow. Yeah, we can only hope, right? We can only hope it could be the same quality that uh, J.P. Morgan has. But yeah, you know, these are all seeds. You know, it's always fun. Uh, I'll quote Hannibal. Uh, what is it? Hannibal Smith from uh, the A-Team, right? I love it when a plan comes together. Uh, it's just very exciting to watch the seeds that we sowed you know, two years ago, starting to pay off uh, investments that we made really coming true, theories uh, that we had early on are panning out and playing out. So it's it's just very, very interesting to watch. And so what motivated you to join us in the podcast studio today? First of all, I, I listen to some of your podcasts and it's a great conversation. So to me, you know, when, whenever I do one of these and they go, well, what's your goal? I always say my goal is to have a great conversation. I don't know where it's going to end up. I'm not promoting a book. I'm not promoting a video. I'm not promoting anything. Uh, it's really more about having a conversation about really where the world's headed to. And ideally, I could learn something out of it. My profile in, in one of those uh, psychological tests are steadfast, but open-minded. Uh, one of those, you know, it's uh, very much of a uh, assertive, but open-minded, right? I, I have very strong conviction, but if you prove a point, I, I'm willing to learn. So I'm always learning. I'm always here to learn, hear someone else's theory about something, make it my own, make it my own story, build onto the overall narrative itself. Um, you know, the one thing that uh, we've learned over these last, you know, 30 years plus that I've been working is uh, things change Things change all the time. I think the rate of change is what's really happened much, much faster. Thing, And you looked at what COVID did, and COVID really just changed, uh, expedited things that were already happening. Uh, they just did in a very short period of time. I, I heard the other day, you know, we had five years of evolution in a, in a matter of two years or six years of evolution in two years or one year, whatever that number is. So it's just very easy, very interesting to watch all these things really panning out. You know, think about it, you know, Five years ago, we were talking about the efficacy of remote work, right? We were talking about, gee, is it okay to let someone work from home once a week? We don't, that's just not a conversation anymore. Now we're talking the opposite. Is it effective letting someone work from remote all the time, right? That's that's the conversation. So imagine had that not happened, the conversation would have been, gee, something's going to happen a little bit, a little lower, a little lower, a little longer, a little longer, all these other things. And yet, you know, here we are now talking about hybrid work environments, remote work environments, et cetera. So very, very fascinating to watch. Absolutely. And so I often like to launch conversations like this with one of the more provocative media headlines that's trending in our circle. And for this episode, certainly no exception. When you stop to think about an ex-Google CEO like Eric Schmidt recently talking about his views as to why in-office work is better at a time when you have so many people who have been working from home for prolonged periods of time, have reevaluated their priorities, um, want to be able to have that work-life integration without necessarily having the commute at all or every day. It's a trigger point for me to ask you, what is your approach to advising leading organizations, whether it's, you know, the Amazons and Moody's of the world or Dow Jones, or even some of these smaller law firms and the like about staffing their workplaces so that they're fit for the future? 
It's a it's a great question. Uh, you know, I think that in my opinion, the opportunity now is to figure out what you want to be when you grow up as an organization and to prioritize along the way. Uh, and I'll give you two examples. Uh, I heard a podcast a couple of weeks ago of a CEO who is an engineer. And he actually said, I surround myself with other engineers. We come into the office. We would come. This goes back pre-COVID. We came to the office, got our work done, and went home to our families. No beer nights, no pizza parties, no socializing. You know, we got it done and we went home. Nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with the, you know, and I'm a, I'm a capitalist, right? So there's nothing wrong with the company deciding what sort of company do we want to have. I got called up by uh, by newspapers, you know, sort of when, when uh, J.P. Morgan announced, you know, thou shalt return to the office. Oh, you know, they're terrible. They're bad. And my comment was, I don't think so. I think J.P. Morgan decided what do we want to optimize for? If we want to optimize for in-person training and preparing the next generation of J.P. Morgan employees and they believe that it needs to be done in person, then kudos to them. Now, that might not be for everybody. So the interesting thing, Nancy, is that before COVID, I think we had to be all things to all people. Right. Uh, I have to be, oh, I have people that want to work remote. I got to make that work. I have people that want this. I got to make that work. I have all these different factions inside of an organization trying to do things. And, you know, I can't get rid of Fred, even though Fred wants to work remote because I need to make it work, et cetera. Now I have this opportunity to say, what sort of company do I want to be? And I can decide what that is. We have the Airbnb that says work remote forever, wherever wherever you want. We have the JP Morgan that says thou shalt return to the office. And you're going to have other people say this is why it's good. Uh, one of our clients is allowing people to work. Uh, it's three days in the office, two days home, and one month a year they can work from anywhere on the planet. All right, you know they're going to be different opportunities for different companies to do different things, and and I, and for for us the opportunity really is to say, wow, what a great environment that companies get to decide how they want to grow their organization, and they will attract people that actually align there. You know, we predict that you'll be telling your talent acquisition manager, whether that's your in-house recruiter, your contract recruiter, your on-demand recruiter, your global head of talent, hey, look, I need Java developers that are comfortable working in a hybrid environment, or I need financial analysts that are that are prepared to come to work four days a week, whatever that is. And I think it's going to add a new layer of uh, of complexity to talent acquisition, but I think companies will be better off for it because they're going to be able to figure out who they want to attract and who they don't want to attract. You know, a company that says thou shalt be in the office five days a week might not be appealing to to you or Tim, our producer for the for the show, right? And if it's oh, you're going to make me come in, okay, I don't want this job. Fine, I'll go find someone that wants to come in five days a week. So I, I think there's, I just think it creates this opportunity to not have to be things to all people, but to really prioritize what's most important and to execute and move on that. And that level of transparency is absolutely key because, you know, just as there are different types of learners, there are different working styles. There are some people who thrive only if they're in the office a majority of their t time. And there are others that work best if they're fully remote and then there are many shades in between. So I think that's some sage advice that you're offering organizations, especially at such an important time of change, helping to reestablish the type of culture that um, the organization aspires to is important at a time when lots of people are voting with their feet in terms of, you know, walking into different job opportunities uh, to sync up what their needs and desires are uh, from the world of work. So it opens up lots of conversation about what is the future of the employee experience. I agree. Um, you know, I, I come, I spent a lot of years in sales and we were always remote, right? Or most often remote. Uh, you wanted uh, I would I would berate a salesperson who was always in the office and not on the road visiting customers. So there there are elements of the business that were always uh, working outside the headquarter office, and we would return to headquarters yeah you know, once a month for a couple of days, once a quarter for a little bit longer, once a year for a weekend uh, event, etc. Uh, these were very common in, in large organizations. Look to the look to the large uh, 
consulting firms where people are always out on the field uh, weeks at a time, not in the home office, and then returning uh, back, uh, phoning in or whatever they need to do in order to align, align up with the, with the rest of the culture. Um, so these things were happening. We started outsourcing IT in Y2K. So these things were happening. We made adjustments along the way. And I think what companies are sort of adjusting with is everyone's now doing it. You know, you're talking to the CEO who is in his living room or in his office at home. The, you know, uh, I, I remember I was with a company in Atlanta and the CEO said to me, uh, look, I need you to move out to Atlanta. Why? Because when I need you, I want to open up my door and yell, Evan, can you come in here for a minute? And if you're not here, I'm not going to do it. Do you think, I don't think that would, that would happen today, right? We, we've all figured out how to, uh, can you join my Zoom or let's go Skype or something else that's going on there in order to make that actually happen. And so, you know, organizations like DWG have been able to thrive without offices for over a decade, and that's not going to work for every organization, just as as we've established. But I'm curious as to what your thoughts are relative to building a high performance culture and strong leadership in this age of hybrid. Look, the good news is I struggle with it every day. Uh, I'm a people person, uh, and uh, I, I much prefer. I hate the commute. I hate the notion of commuting, but uh, I do better walking around. I like to run into people. I'm, hey, let's go brainstorm. Let's pull up a whiteboard, uh, etc. It's a it's a struggle for me. Uh, it really, really is. I think uh, you know the the time that you're saving in commuting, uh, you're actually spending more time in individual conversations. Uh, then you would, hey, the four of you, can you please come into the conference room? Let's go spend two hours and go solve this problem. Uh, I haven't yet figured out how to make all that work uh, without actually coming together, right? I don't know how, you know, how. what's your longest Zoom meeting, but you, you get Zoom fatigue looking at someone after a long time, as opposed to in a conference room where you could order in lunch and uh, have a working session, et cetera. Uh, we had a board meeting and a management meeting back in November, and it was, uh, you know, incredibly productive. We were together for four or five hours and incredibly productive. That never would have happened uh, online. So I, I think there's time and a place for everything. I think we ourselves, uh, we're about 70 people in the company, and we're figuring out, you know, what does our plan look like for the next year vis-a-vis uh, get-togethers, uh, employee get-togethers, company get-togethers really throughout the year. And we're spread really throughout the country. We have people in in uh, California, Arizona, Texas, Virginia, North Carolina, New York, New Jersey, Florida. We're we're pretty spread across you know lots of different areas. Vancouver, you know, really uh, across the board there. So it's uh, it's it's definitely with it, not without its challenges. That's for sure. And you know I've pulled out the notion that you have to pick the moments that matter when you come together versus the things that can get done well remotely. And that's just part of the nature of things nowadays. Anything else that you can think of relative to leadership qualities or insights that are important in this time of hybrid? Yeah. So I started to leverage sort of my history in sales. You know, one of the one of the best things about sales is your performance indicators, you know, your KPIs or your objectives are incredibly clear. You have a number, go hit your number. Your number is usually a factor of how many proposals do you have out, how many qualified opportunities you're working on, how many leads, uh, the the sales cycle, etc. No one's ever asked me, how long did it take you to close that deal? Or I know you didn't close the deal, but I know you worked really hard to really hard on it. No one really cares about time when you're in sales. They care about the results. If you could translate those objectives for everyone else and not make them based on time and you try to turn them into, you know, what are the metrics that you're really, really working towards, that sort of alleviates the time-based objectives. And I I think as a society, we're shifting away from time-based objectives, clearly with knowledge workers. You know, this isn't about a factory where you got to clock in and clock out. Do I really care how much time someone has spent coding or do I just want to see the results that they're actually delivering? And I think the the clearer that we are, and so the recommendation or the guidance that I got was being very, very clear to everyone what their priority is and how you're measuring them. Because this way, you're not thinking about what are they what are they thinking about? What are they doing? What are they worrying about? You know, you're not seeing them every day. 
but you're really looking at them for uh, the uh, the actual metric they're supposed to be delivering. And of course, you know, we're leveraging Slack, we're leveraging all the other collaboration tools, you know, that are out there today uh, to, you know, to, to facilitate that process. And I certainly think when you are taking more of that results-oriented view of performance, organizations need to start to think about how they're going to evolve their performance management and development capabilities in line with that. That's right. And that's part of where digital workplace comes into view and the importance of making sure that those tools are readily available regardless of where people are and are honing in on the right questions to get people to to focus on the end result as opposed to where people are sitting on any given day. Yeah, that's that's right. And, and look, I, I do think it's going to make it into a colder society. Um, you know, it, if if Fred is not meeting his objectives, the the soft objectives are are no longer as material as they were pre-COVID. Oh, Fred's great to work with. He's so nice. He bakes cookies for everyone's birthday. He's always got a smile on his face. He's so much fun. He's the first one to run out and get coffee for everybody. Um, He's the last one who leaves the office at night. You know, all the things that Fred was doing other than actually getting his job done, uh, you were sort of giving credit for those things. But what if you never see Fred, right? What if Fred is actually not part of your day-to-day visuals, Right. And all you're doing is measuring Fred on what he gets done. So sooner or later, you're going to say, gee, Fred's not getting his job done. And yeah, I'm glad he smiles on the Zoom meeting, but does it really make a difference? So I I do think that from uh, where's the world going to, there's certainly a talent shortage. So we're really living in a very candidate centric world today. But we really predicted at the end of 21 that that's really going to shift to being more employer centric. And companies uh, will, knowing that people are going to move jobs faster, uh, they will be more, they'll be faster to, to move people out of their company. If you've ever been part of an organization that was uh, eliminating people, it's actually very depressing, right? You got to walk in. Oh, where's, where's David? Oh, David, we let David go. David was so much fun. Let's go back to Fred, right? Fred, oh, Fred was great. What do you mean? Fred got me coffee every Wednesday. He baked cookies. Oh, I, we really miss Fred. But if that's gone, if if Fred is just a you know a square on a Zoom screen, you know it's going to make it's going to make companies a little bit colder and a little bit faster to react to moving people in and out of the company itself. And that's a pretty significant shift. So in an organization such as yours, where you're really trying to help ensure that the right people land in the right places, I think it becomes an interesting conversation for us to talk about the different types of hires, one of which is what I call mid-career hires. You may have a different term for that, but essentially experienced hires. And when you put that in the context of, you know, the great resignation and, you know, the cost of hiring continues to be significant, not only in terms of, you know, bringing people on board, but inculcating them into the organization helping them establish their networks, get desk ready and productive. So how do organizations that have historically seen attrition within the first two years for mid-career hires mitigate some of those risks in this current environment? And as the shift you described to more of an employer-centric environment down the line? Excellent question. So a few things. Let's double click on this. So A, let's actually call the great resignation the greater resignation. So 4.5 million people quit their jobs in March of 22. Seems like a, a crazy number, but it's actually a million more than the 2019 average. So on average in 2019, 3.5 million people were quitting every single month. Yes, it's 4.5 million, but it's it's a million more. Now, again, tremendous number, but there were always people quitting. 
there was always this inherent attrition in the U.S. The average is around 22%. Financial services, 15%. Retail, 80%. So there always were people coming and going. And the variety of reasons of why it's happening, we believe it's slowing down. It's going to be replaced with the job hopper economy. But there's always been a movement around there. And, and I think what companies need to do is to sort of recognize that you know, one of the recommendations we gave to a client is promote this role as a 24-month assignment. Hey, look, Fred, please come work for us. This is a 24-month assignment. I'm going to pay you a boatload of money for 24 months. And when that assignment is over, you can either take a different assignment at the company where you get paid another boatload of money, or you can go leave and you'll have everything associated with it, everything associated with you. And, and I'll ask you a question. You know, if you five years ago, right, if you saw a uh, actually three years ago, if you saw a, a Silicon Valley software engineer that had been at four companies in 12 years, that would actually be regarded as a hot software engineer. That software engineer must be amazing. Conversely, if you saw a software engineer that was at the same company for 12 years, not a co founder, and it wasn't Google or Airbnb or Facebook, you would probably say, hmm, there's something wrong with that software engineer. So let's go back to your question before. If I, if you five years ago saw a resume of a 30-year-old who had been at the same company for a decade, not Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or Google or McKinsey, you would probably describe that individual as loyal steadfast and committed. So here we are now, we're recording this in May of 22. So if you saw a resume of a 30-year-old who'd been at the same company for a decade, how would you describe them? <laughs> Stagnant, potentially. There you go. Someone Risk who averse. has fear of change. Yep, fear of change. Right, so what's changed? What, what's happened? What's happened in this period of three years that the person that was loyal, committed, and steadfast three years ago is now stale, risk-averse, and almost unwanted? What's changed is that the availability of jobs is just so much greater than it was three years ago. Uh, applying for a job when I was a kid was you found heavy stock paper to print your resume on. You typed up your cover letter. And if you were crazy, right, and you overdid it, you applied to 20 to 30 companies, right? And people would look at you. I can't believe you applied to 30 companies. You must be insane. What's applying for a job today? Click, 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 click. Piece of cake to apply for a job. Mm -hmm. Uh, what was interviewing like five years ago, 10 years ago? You brought in a business uh, suit or whatever, business business attire. You took the afternoon off. You had to lie to your manager about where you're going. It was like a whole cloak and dagger. What's interviewing today? It's a 15-minute video screen. Like who doesn't have 15 minutes to interview? Tim probably had two interviews this morning. It's just that simple to do. So the only thing that was keeping you at your job, right? The only thing, right? Because now it's easy to click, click, click. It's easy to apply. It's easy to interview. So the only thing that was keeping you was the stigma of leaving jobs too soon, right? We all had parents or grandparents that said, suck it up. You've only been there for two years. Suck it up. Now, the, the four out of 10 people are looking for a job, it, it, are open to looking for a job. 60% uh, of all millennials have no problem leaving a job within six months. I saw an article about three weeks ago that said that in the survey that they had of millennials, 20% or 20 to 25% would rather quit their job than work at a job they don't like. Crazy. Like it's just, it's a whole other world that we're living in. So employers really need to adjust to those things. What do we recommend? Again, this is a 24 month assignment or hey, Showing progression, and this was probably the other answer to a long-winded answer to your question, showing progression to your employees much, much, much sooner. You know, in the old days, I would say, look, I just gave Fred a promotion. He's not going anywhere. Not true anymore, right? There is no, gar there is no guarantee that Fred isn't leaving. 
There's no guarantee. So what you really want to do is, is have Fred not even look at other jobs. So how do I do that? I say to Fred, hey, look, here's your first promotion. Four months from now, I want you to be doing X and Y. And you'll get a you'll get another bump up in four months or six months. By the end of the year, I want you to be doing these new things. That I'm going to teach you how to do as well. So I'm, I'm putting up aggression in place that I'm showing the candidate uh, that I'm showing my employee what the world's going to look like for them a year from now. Not when they walk in and say, "Hey, I got a job offer from another company. Can you match mm-hmm. it?" By then, it's just too late. It comes back to the point of transparency that we talked about earlier. It's transparency of expectation and, you know, what the give to get is at the same time. That's right. Totally agree. Totally agree. So another trend that we're starting to see is that uh, some organizations are reducing the minimum education requirement from a four-year degree to an associate's degree. And in part, this is because of the challenge in you know, trying to hire people in, in this moment of, you know, the great resignation. And so I'm curious to see if this is a trend that you're seeing on scale and how does that reshape what organizations need to do with this type of hire early on that may be different from onboarding, say, the mid-career hire that we were talking about before? We do a recruiter index every month. So since June of 2020, we have surveyed recruiters, uh, our recruiters, for their overall market sentiment, what industries are they seeing, workloads, and then candidate sentiment and some other information. So this is all from a recruiter's perspective. So A, if you think about what roles a recruiter is working on, they're either working on the knowledge worker roles or they're working on high-volume uh, high volume, lower waged workers, right? Uh, and for the most part, the average recruiter is working on roles that are, let's say, in the eighty thousand dollar plus range, something along those lines, fifty to eighty thousand dollars. So you could sort of see those roles. And one of the one of the data points is we've actually seen the need for a college degree drop significantly over the last five months. I think 30 plus percent of the roles right now that were recruiters are working on do not require a college degree. I think the number not too long ago was like 20%. So, you know, that's a huge shift, huge, huge, huge shift in terms of, and what that's telling me is exactly what you said, Nancy, is look, I need someone with these skills. I don't care if they went to college or not. And that's really what we're seeing. And again, this just goes back to moving into a skills-based society and and less about, uh, did I go to college? Uh, How much time am I working, et cetera? It's it's less about that and really more about can you get the job done or not? Uh, Ironically, pre-pandemic, it was the highest employment levels of ex-cons. So interesting, right? I need a Java developer and I don't care. I don't care one bit. If you could code, you got a job. And what you're seeing happen now is the the work from anywhere construct that we've all been living in since COVID started is really, really morphing to hire from anywhere. So you're seeing many companies now offering up, oh, I can get you English-speaking developers that don't live in the U.S., so that trend that we started to see in the 90s with outsourcing call centers, end of the 90s with outsourcing development to support Y2K, business process outsourcing in the early 2000s, uh, now you're seeing, gee, I, I need a coder, I need someone to code, I can't find someone in the U.S. to code, so you know what, I'll go outside the U.S. These are all some very significant shifts, and one of the things I'm thinking about is how do we start to translate these mega trends to the needs of the typical audience for this podcast, which is really digital workplace leaders and practitioners. And obviously they're facing the same challenges that these, you know, wider organizations are experiencing. But I think there are almost two layers to the challenge. So there's certainly the notion of leveraging the digital workplace inside of an organization to help support 
the onboarding process, getting people productive and having a positive experience of working within their new organization through these digital workplace capabilities. Then the other side of the equation is dealing with more attrition within the digital workplace ranks themselves. And so let's talk a little bit about each of these things. And from your point of view, especially working in an industry where you are supporting um, capabilities for recruiting, leveraging AI and networks, I want to draw out some of your insights around innovation whether it's you know through the the video capability side and or the AI side relative to what these digital workplace teams and leaders need to be thinking about in supporting the hiring and onboarding process and then again from their own team development standpoint first i think that you, your audience and the leaders you know this is not new We've always made decisions on what we're going to do internally and what we're going to outsource. Accounting is a good example. I don't know if the, if your your own personal taxes, you could do it yourself or you can outsource it to somebody else. As a company, do you have your own? Do you do your taxes? Do you have someone in-house that does it? Or do you have an accounting firm that does it? You've hired lawyers. Uh, you might have your own general counsel, but hey, if you're doing certain transactions, you're going to bring on outsiders to do it. Very complicated transactions and very complicated things. And you might even consider your lawyer, your account, an extension of your company but you've outsourced it. And I think that talent acquisition is something that every company is going to be spending more money on in 22 than ever before. And so you got to brace yourselves with, gee, who is looking after uh, the talent acquisition? Who's my extension to help me, the business owner, uh, address these situations? Uh, whatever you were hiring, whatever the numbers were, you got to expect to be hiring 20 to 30% more. Uh, you're just going to have that attrition that you're, you know, that you want to prepare for. So I, that's, that's first off, you know, we, in the nineties security was the, the guard at the desk that checked your ID. And now everyone is spending money on security. Um, now I don't know if your organization has a chief security officer, internet security, network security, or if you're just outsourcing it to someone else, but we've all figured that out. Payroll, you could do your own payroll. You can use one of the many companies that do payroll. So they're, we've already decided as companies, we're going to focus on the things that we do best. And then we're going to bring in outsiders and, and focused on outsourcing those areas that are areas that we don't need to have a core competence in. So I, I think that this is yet another area for companies to say, gee, which, which areas are we going to be uh, which areas do we need to be having a hybrid environment? Which areas do we need to be having access to on a regular basis? And which areas do we just don't care where they're working from? And if we don't care where they're working from, then we could really hire them from anywhere. They could be working anywhere on the planet as long as they're actually getting the work done itself. So once again, you know, if we started our careers back when I did, we did it all. Uh, and now we're moving away from that. We had, I, I had our own data center back in the 90s. Never would think of running your own data center now, right? You're using Amazon Web Services or Microsoft Azure or something else like that. So there's certainly things that we're already doing as companies. And I think that that, you know, once again, the prioritization now as a company is to figure out what are those key areas that we want to we want to be able to touch and feel from a, a work environment, getting together, to, uh, et, et cetera. And by the way, if getting together is expensive, right? Because you're working remotely or in a hybrid environment and getting together is expensive. You almost want fewer people who you're worried about from a culture perspective. You know, the, the benefit of outsourcing your call center to a, a company is they manage that process. They handle the, gee, people are quitting and they're hiring and they're, they're handling all the onboarding. They're creating that motivation structure for their employees. You're benefiting from it. Now you're paying a little extra for the service, but that's a very, very definable environment. You know, if you have an accounting firm that's handling your books, 
You don't really care whether, well, you do, obviously, but their internal politics of people coming and going is not really affecting you so much. You have a a key person on the account, and they're handled by a variety of people that are coming and going, and it's their responsibility to to, uh, inculcate the new people to your business environment. So I think as business owners in a digital work, really thinking about, you know, what are your core competences, and how do you ensure that you have those people around you in, in a more cohesive fashion? That's a lot for everyone to to think about. I know we're getting close to the end of our time together. I guess one of the things I want to make sure that people come away with is really your, you know, core sets of advice for individuals working in and around the digital workplace arena so that they are getting the best of their workforces as well as the new capabilities that are out there from an AI point of view, um, automation point of view, integration point of view. So share with me some of your final thoughts about this group. Yeah, no, I'm always trying not to plug what we do. If it's a byproduct, then uh, then so be it. I, I think that as business owners in a digital work environment, what you need to be doing is consistently building your your most precious asset, which are your people. So I'm not telling you something you don't know, but what that really means today is you constantly have to be building your pipeline of people. If people in your organization are like customers in your restaurant, what, would you ever say, oh, I got to stop. I have enough customers. I don't need to be finding new customers. The answer is no, of course. I'm, it's a perpetual process. So there, I, I need as a business owner in a digital world to have a constant flow of people that I'm looking for, whether that's entry-level people, mid-management people, this this skill set, I'm constantly looking for it. One thing that our software can do is provide that consistent pipeline of qualified candidates interested in working for you. Because if, as you know, you don't need to hire a hundred, you may not need to hire a hundred people tomorrow, but you're going to need to hire a hundred people over the next 12 months. And there's probably four job recs across four job requirements across those hundred people. I'm making it up. So it really means you have, you know, 25 of each that you're hiring over the next year. You want to make sure that you have some sort of pipeline of people that are perpetually raising their hand saying, I'm interested. I think the next thing you start talking about video and other things is you, you really got to expedite your hiring process. The average fill time, I think in the US pre-COVID was like 42 days, something like 45 days. That's just too darn long. And the reason it's too darn long is the assumption is anyone that you're interviewing right now, you should assume are interviewing for 20 other places. So if if you're competing with 19 other firms for that person, that you're creating the same environment that everyone else does, and all you're competing with is on dollars, which are probably going to be pretty consistent across the other 19 companies, it's really the person that's going to move quickly. So you really want to expedite that overall process and leverage technology to move that candidate down the process faster. So what does that mean? If the person, if you want every candidate to interview six people, have two Zooms where three people are showing up to each Zoom. Or if they have to meet five people, try to get everyone onto one Zoom or two Zooms, but record the Zoom or record the the session and circulate it around. No reason to make the candidate go through that process. Set expectations up front. Hey, Mr. Candidate, it's now Monday. Your first interview is on Tuesday. We're going to have another one on Wednesday. We've recorded the one on Tuesday. We're going to ship it around to everybody, and we're going to have you an answer by Friday. Um, and if the person's not right, then move on, get past it. Uh, but you really expect to move people. You know, you hear a lot about ghosting and all these other things. If you're trying to compete against the companies that have a much greater budget, they're stocking up on employees right now. Uh, that's what we're seeing. You know, you're going to see numbers. The last two months of numbers have been much, much higher. And we believe it's all artificial. We believe that companies, there's so much backfill going on that they are stocking up on employees. Why? Because when you're a big financial institution and you have 10 open headcount for this one role, the hiring manager tells their boss, hey, look, do you want me to hire 10 knowing that three will leave within the first four months? Or do you want me to hire 13 so you end up with 10 within three to four months? And the, 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 the person with the purse string goes, hire 13. 
So you're seeing companies stock up on employees. One of our clients said, I don't have a hiring problem. I have an attrition problem. That's the truth. So that's what you're competing against. You're competing against companies that are saying, look, I'll take four of those. I'll take four of those. You're looking for one, and you have a company that's better financially uh, positioned to take four. That's what you're competing with. So moving quickly, creating a great culture, aligning up with the priorities of the candidates, those are the things that are going to help you win. Who would have thought we would have gone from stockpiling toilet paper to people? Oh, I, I say it all the time, right? <laughs> right? We were stockpiling Purell, and now they're stockpiling candidates. Right? It's, 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 it's fascinating to watch. But by the way, it actually makes sense. Right. If money isn't the object and I have to get my, you know, the last thing you want to say as a hiring manager is the reason I have these open seats. I have open seats, right? Open seats is a crime. I didn't hit my number because I couldn't find people. What? You couldn't find people. Now, the next excuse is, well, I found people and two of them quit. Okay. So you couldn't figure out how to keep them. Much better to say, hey, I see you're a little bit over budget. Yeah, I know. You wanted me to hit that number. I stocked up for an extra three knowing that three are going to quit. That's a much better position to be in, certainly if you have the financial, you know, if, certainly if you have the financial wherewithal to do it. And if you looked at Goldman Sachs's numbers uh, that they reported last quarter, their one of their biggest surprises in terms of added expense was in hiring and retention. Not surprised. Just not surprised. We actually predicted in at the end of 21 that the U.S. economy will spend $50 billion more in 22 over 2019 in hiring employees. So therein makes the case for really reimagining your onboarding process as well as the recruiting side so that you're in the best position to get people onboarded and productive citizens as quickly as possible. And then looking at the next leg of the process, which is about creating the staying power, if that's your ultimate objective, um, or to quickly prune that pool of new hires, as you described, that the possibility might need to be. That's right. Completely agree. And every company is going to do things differently, right? Every company will do things differently. Well, Evan, it's hard to believe. I think we've hit the the top of our window together. I want to thank you for taking some time to chat with me. I certainly hope that we'll have a chance to stay connected from this point. Uh, But what a fascinating conversation. Your energy is infectious. Uh, thank you very much. Well, you know, you set it up with uh, really fantastic questions. Look, we're all we're all challenged with figuring out what the new world looks like. But I think what we can all uh, I, I just blogged the other day. Uh, just because we took our masks off, things are not going back to normal, right? We want them to. We want to feel normal, but in the world of work, there is a new normal. And it's not just taking off a mask and going back to the way things were, but it creates opportunities, opportunities for companies, opportunities for people. Think about the world that we're living in now. It's it's just amazing. You know, to watch a candidate prioritize work-life balance, that's beautiful. That is a beautiful thing, right? Uh, you know, as opposed to I'll just pay the person more money and they'll stay. It's a whole new world. And it's a real challenge. And I think I think it's a whole new world. And, you know, these conversations are forcing everyone to step it up and figure out what the new world's going to look like. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to really have a fantastic conversation with you, Nancy. Digital Workplace Impact is brought to you by the Digital Workplace Group. DWG is a strategic partner covering all aspects of the evolving digital workplace industry, not only through membership, but also benchmarking and boutique consulting services. For more information, visit digitalworkplacegroup.com.